Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Welcome to this episode of the AMR Studio. Uh, today we have Professor Friedrich Amtvist, who was here with us during his visits to Uppsala University and the UAC to give a seminar. Yes, he came to give a seminar back in March, beginning right. of March. Yeah, it was yes. March. As you can see, we have a new voice in this intro. Our regular host, Jenny Jackman, she is a little bit indisposed. Her voice is not the best today. So here we have Paul with us. And we hope you enjoy. We have today with us Professor Frederick Almqvist. Did I pronounce it right? Because it's a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us what you're working on now and a little bit of how you end up where you are right now? Yes. Okay. Thanks for having me in this pod. It's it's, it's an honor for sure. Yeah. No, I'm a chemist, organic chemist, uh, meaning that I want to make new molecules that haven't been out there yet, and hopefully these new molecules should have a a meaning. In my world, it's amazing if they can cure something. And uh, for this pod, what I've been doing the last 20 plus years is, of course, antimicrobial resistance and that part of it. But uh, basically, I'm a, a synthetic organic chemist that love to make new molecules. And our group right now is working on mainly antimicrobial resistance. But it's also a very nice, well, also scary connection between what the microbiome and the microbiota can produce in terms of virulence factors and that also connect to our amyloid diseases. So there are uh, fibers in bacteria that are amyloid and therefore a couple of years ago we have started also uh, to spread into that part. Can you explain a little bit what amyloid is? Yes, so amyloid uh, diseases, well if I take the names it's more easy to realize what it is, like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, so neurodegenerative type of disorders and they are often summed up as amyloid diseases. Okay, and now there is an angle to the microbiome more than just neurological. uh, Exactly, which is very, very interesting uh, and, of course, kind of an open door. But scientists around the world now show that there is a very important connection with what bacteria... I mean, if you put it like this, it's kind of obvious that if bacteria make amyloid fibers, they make them, we can call them functional amyloid so they make them for a reason Mm -hmm. and uh, to do that they can't have that amyloid being formed inside the cell so they need to form it nicely on the outside and therefore they have a very dedicated machinery to control their amyloid factory Mm -hmm. if we put it like that and if you have i mean we are 50 percent bacteria so we have probably a lot of these proteins uh, around and and uh, that uh, control the bacterial amyloids uh-huh. And they might be important to also control the onset or... or amyloid so. production within our own cells, Yeah, right? I mean, either protect us or they can also be a scary onset of amyloid if you, if you see it like that. So just to find out these connections is very interesting. Cool. If we backtrack a little bit, you said that you are a chemist because you've always been interested in uh, this compound making, right? In mm. uh, That you could actually make a molecule that yeah. can have a function and that can potentially help somebody or some problem out there. How did you particularly end up in chemistry related to antimicrobials or antibiotics or infectious diseases? Mm, Yeah, that is also, uh, you never know what happens, right? So I I was a PhD student at Lund University, had an amazing, well, he's he's still around there, but um, amazing supervisor, Turbjörn Freyd. And we made uh, compounds, mimics of a very difficult to make natural product, Taxol, which is known as an anti-cancer compound. But the basic was to mimic this complicated molecule and to make uh, analogs of it that could potentially be even better and easier to synthesize. So I had that, you know, making molecules for a purpose thing. But then uh, the system in Sweden and in many other places of the world, you should go after your PhD and learn new things, right? 
And I, I was really into this structure-based design, try to learn how to use computers mm-hmm. to help Computational design. structural yeah, biology. To, yeah, but it. this was back in the 90s, so it was not that advanced uh-huh. as it is now. But the group and one of the professors that really was world-leading and also behind the company that made software and so forth, Trifos, was Garland Marshall. And he was in St. Louis at the biomedical computing there. So I went there to do a project. And when I came there, the project was to try to design new compounds that could inhibit bacterial machinery, the the so-called Chaperon-Usher pathway in E. coli. And the professor behind this system, who was kind of in lead of the biological part of the project, Scott Hultgren, was there. And he's today one of my best friends. And and he's such a scientist. I mean, an amazing scientist. And what I mean with that is when you're open-minded to all topics. So science today, to me, and since then, is not chemistry, molecular bio. It's a mix of all this, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, come to my group meetings, please. And I was a synthetic chemist coming into molecular biology with very little molecular biology background, Mm -hmm. right? And they still, from day one, they just asked me, what do you think, Frederick? What do you think about this? And kind of asked for my opinion. From your background, right? Like to get your input from a different... From Mm -hmm. my different view and how does this crazy chemist look at this? And And how uh, was that experience? It was just amazing. And then when I went back, I had a wonderful scholarship uh, from the Wallenberg Foundation that allowed me to, well, pick is a big word, but I could ask a Swedish university to host me Mm -hmm. with my own funding. Uh, Back when you came back from being there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, then I went up to the north to UMI University. And being a synthetic chemist, I came back with a project Mm -hmm. because I could still work, kind of continue with the postdoc work, now being the partner, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a mix of mainly me and Scott. Garland kept doing other things, so he was fading out and was not much part of the project anymore. But again, that was the the kick on why I ended up in the antimicrobial field, because of Scott. And then we kept going for quite some years, trying to develop molecules to inhibit E. coli, urinary tract infections called UPEC, Mm -hmm. uh, and they produce a fiber, a proteinous fiber on the outer surface that allow them to withstand shear forces in the urinary tract. Which means uh, when you actually urinate out, right, that you would expect that the bacteria will get flushed out, but if they have these compounds in the surface, they will get attached to the bladder wall. Yeah, it's so beautiful. So they make this fiber. It's, of course, a costly process to make it. And they only need it in these circumstances Mm -hmm. when it's shear forces. But then they have this wonderful fiber. So they can, like a spring, they just can take all the pressure from the shear force and stay in the urinary tract. So our idea was to, and this is a well-conserved machinery among many bacteria. So we were aiming to inhibit this process by inhibiting a chaperone, which is a helper protein that take all the subunits that form the fiber from the inner membrane to the outer membrane. So like an elevator. So it's, yeah. We we can call it a sophisticated elevator because a chaperone, if you check the, well, check it in a dictionary, it says an old woman helping a younger woman through the streets of London. Yeah, it's a a companion, right? (laughs) So we designed compounds to inhibit this. And it was successful. So the idea, again, is not to kill this E. coli, just disarm it. And uh, we got bald bacteria. Make it weaker, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, the purpose is that E. coli, when they don't need pili, they can still grow and mm-hmm. have fun somewhere else. But when they are causing disease in the urinary tract, they can't form these pili and then they will not cause an infection. So from these, have you gotten any compound that has actually ended up in the market? No. Not yet? No, no, it's uh, it's still uh, basic science for sure. But we have now come to such a detailed knowledge. And yes, last year we published uh, from work uh, done in Scott's lab mainly, a paper in Nature Microbiology, where the structure of the usher, uh, ah. which is the presenter molecule up in the outer membrane, 
very detailed structure. So the project continues now, but now we're designing compounds more directed at the usher and not the chaperone. So it's like more directed to that specific process, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But there, I must say that this setup of inhibiting either the formation of the pili or its ability to adhere has been around for quite a while. And I'm very optimistic that an approach which is more about inhibiting the adhesin, the, the very tip of the fiber, you have a protein binding to a carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. So in the normal urinary tract infection, mannose is the carbohydrate. The a specific receptor. sugar that yeah. is at the receptor our, in yeah. our bladder. Exactly. exactly. So uh, they have developed, and Scott is involved in this too, and Jim Janetka at WashU, they developed a concept where they put an add-on to mannose, so to speak, and they call them manocytes, and they clear the normal urinary tract infection. So this can actually be taken as a treatment and not just as a perhaps prophylactic because you were... This would be one of the first real uh, antivirulence approaches that I think can reach them. They have... They are now in phase something, one, two, Okay, a, yeah. we, we talked that, before in the podcast about yeah. the different clinical phases yeah, and yeah. what do they mean. And yeah. uh, so it's ongoing yeah. and on the way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm extremely optimistic because the properties so far seem to be very good. That's uh, very, very interesting yeah. to hear. So you've been, you said, approximately 20 years working in this area, right? Or yeah, time flies, so maybe it's even more. But it's, so uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, how do you feel that your field has changed over the years? Right, it's a very good question. So when we were in the early days, in the end of the 90s, we were approached by Big Pharma to try to develop the Pilicide program, for instance. But then, like, from one day to another everything changed. So we were we were actually very close to signing a contract to get support and to continue the development. But then this big pharma decided from one day to another that, no, we will stop doing antiviral, antibacterial, well, anti-infectives, and, and then focus on other areas. Maybe more profitable, like exactly. immune so, diseases. And, and this or... was what happened then. So most of these companies just stopped their work on anti-infectives and kind of left it for academia. And then, I mean, we kept working on our approach, more from a fundamental scientific point of view. But as we said before this interview, I think many of us that believes in the disarming of and the idea of, of uh, hitting virulence is that you don't put the pressure. If they live in the soil, for instance, you go for something that they need when they cause infection. And then it's only that little niche that gets kind of inhibited. So it's not like the whole life of the bacteria, but exactly. it's only the process that exactly. would actually cause the problem. Exactly. So if you have a, we can say E. coli, uh, if you produce this compound, if we put it to that level, if you produce it in tons mm-hmm. and it leaks out in a river, mm-hmm. potentially, which happens now, yeah. as you know, in India, it's a big problem. You will not do anything because they're not really infected. In that part, in, in, the, in that river, no bacteria will have an advantage of... Uh, so the, it's no pressure yeah. out there. However, if they reach the urinary tract in that specific environment, then they are disarmed and removed and the immune system can kick in and so forth. But the thing is that this fits very well with these infectious diseases where you don't die You can diagnose carefully and know what you're suffering from. And you can uh, probably take it if you need one or two days longer treatment. It's okay. And other segments would be like chlamydia infections. Mm -hmm. You can get sterile. So you, of course, need to treat it. But you don't die. Secondary effects from the infection. So these type of... And it would still spare tons of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Because that's what they use today. So in chlamydia, it's 130 million people getting treated every year. And that's tons of doxycycline and these kind of antibiotics, which I believe should be used for tougher infections, dramatic infections, when you can get sepsis and die. This relates to the topic we've been talking a little bit here, that 
it's not only about finding new antibiotics. It's also about finding ways that we can preserve the antibiotics we already have that are right. working properly for the things yeah. we really need them, yeah. not overuse them. Exactly. And another segment of this antivirulence, which is also an open door and I think will take off, is that in combination with a traditional antibiotic, you can find new ways to boost the antibiotic, make it great again. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and that it has been there with beta-lactamase inhibitors helping beta-lactams, obviously. The thing is that there you know exactly what's happening. So you, it has been its own niche. Beta-lactamase killing penicillins or destroying it. And then you inhibit this enzyme and then you get it effective again. But the beta-lactamase inhibitor itself is a non-antibiotic. So the kind of the say has been there, but no one has really used it. The approach, right? The Maybe approach. the approach hasn't been very uh, exploited yet. No, and in, in this case, it's known that it's because of this. But if you do it in a more phenotypic way, that you just see if you can boost with other antivirulence approaches, no one has screened for it. You only screen for killing. Killing and combinations of killings. Yeah, killing or stopping growth. And then if you find a compound doing that, you for sure try to combine it with other antibiotics to see if they are synergistic. Yeah. But that's two antibiotics doing Together. Good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what I'm describing is a non-antibiotic boosting an antibiotic, meaning that this piece, the non-antibiotic, produced... Will it's a helper. Be, it's a helper. And I still believe that this combination will be tougher to get resistant to than when you have two Antibiotic. traditional antibiotics, where you already have resistance to both. Yeah, because perhaps when you have two antibiotics together, especially if the cell can find a way to survive both at the same time through a same process, you basically have a one solution that fits the two antibiotics. Whereas if you have this helper that, that targets a completely different mechanism, plus exactly. the antibiotic action, yeah could be a lot of potential there. Yeah, yeah, that's what we think. So changing a little bit the uh, tracks here, do you have experience of working with different disciplines within your projects or are your projects a little bit more niche, even though you said that you really like to see science as this bigger mm. concept where you have a structural biologist, a molecular biologist yeah. and chemists, your practical work, have you had this experience of working in, let's say, multidisciplinary teams? Oh, yeah. So all that is, as I said, from working with Scott, that was to me the obvious way to work. Mm -hmm. Now a Swedish group very rarely get to the size of these American groups. So it's harder to have them, you know, to take other disciplines into your own group. And to be honest, I think it's maybe a better way to use funding to work together, meaning that I'm an expert in organic synthesis, and that is what we mainly do in my lab, right? But we work tightly with a molecular biologist, which is the expert there, and they have their PhD students and postdocs. But the thing is that we don't just send the compound and hope for the best. We meet, have seminars together. We, my PhD students learn how the assay is done. Mm -hmm. The PhD student at the molecular biologist, I'm a co-supervisor of, of a molecular biologist, and he will actually do one of the compounds in the lab just, you know, to know how to do some to synthesis learn some too. Synth oh. So you don't have to be an expert, but you should definitely go there and learn. and Be exposed and exactly, to this environment, be right? And we have a lot of work done together with structural biology, as, as you mentioned. So, Have you found some challenges working in this setting? Or can you think of something that was either very easy or more difficult because of having this setup? Yeah, that's also a very good question. So uh, it has two sides. To me, it's the only way to really answer tough questions, to really make a difference. Then this is the way to do it. I can make progress and really cool stuff with chemistry only, but it kind of stops at a certain level. It's easier, if I put it like that, because it's me and my PhD student and maybe a postdoc, and, and we have full control. So uh, we are fewer, but we have full control. The thing is, when you start to collaborate with like three PIs and their teams, so I, I have a great experience. We often publish with three corresponding authors and three equally, you know, first authors and these kind of things. 
which makes sense because it's definitely three disciplines working together. But you can imagine the difference in putting this together Mm -hmm. to get the paper finally there. So um, I hear people saying that, wow, it's so many authors, how hard can it be, kind of. (laughs) And I say the opposite. So when you have these projects with so many people being involved, doing important things, but small pieces... It's tougher to get it finalized. Yeah, like kind of like make the synthesis, right, of the whole story coming from the things. I mean, it's really interesting and uh, yeah, it's more different. It's more rewarding, but it's for sure not easier. And tough, yeah, harder work. It's harder, and it also put a lot of effort in getting the project moving in the right direction. You need to have meetings regularly, right? So it's a lot of. You need some social skills too. <laughs> Which uh, I think they also get developed when you work in this multidisciplinary or maybe yeah. multi, let's say also multicultural because yeah. they come from different backgrounds, scientific backgrounds. How you look at things might be different. But but also, I mean, we in academia, we have a, we are not only here to do research. We are here to be mentors and to teach. Mm. And in my field, to have chemists coming out there, right? And to me, it's a much better chemist in the end if you also have been, if you have contact with other disciplines and and learn these kind of, it's a modern scientist that we produce and not just a a segment of chemistry coming out. This is a question that kind of comes out now to my head. From your experience, people that have been trained in your lab, do you have any examples of somebody that because of working in this type of setup decided to continue their career in a different area that they started with you? Yeah, different areas for sure, but several of of my former PhD students have uh, taken the what you would say the natural way and went to AstraZeneca in Sweden working in in that part or on the company side yeah yeah. on the company side but um, I also have a few PhDs that have moved on and one of them was uh, also taking a similar path as I did but in this case learning more molecular biology Mm -hmm. so he went and learned really a lot of molecular biology, deep methodology and so forth and came back and is now uh, doing very well as a young young PI. He's not in infectious diseases anymore, but working on a very interesting cancer type mm-hmm. of work. So, cool. Yeah. I was thinking from your experience and mostly in your topic, what do you think is missing in the area, in this antibiotics AMR research area from your point of view? Right, so uh, now I I can maybe turn a bit technical again, but it's uh, kind of cultures, what kind of experience you have. And if you're going to take it further from academia and have the proof of concept set up, we have the idea, we prove it somewhat, but then to have a compound that really make a difference, you need to have advanced in vivo models and these kind of things. And my experience is that here in Uppsala, there is a nice setting with a, it's called UDOP. UDOP. Uh, Yeah. So they work on uh, PK properties, pharmacokinetic properties, formulations, these kind of things, which is rare in academia. So uh, if you're in industry, that's what happens. So, So when we, if we come with something that looks promising, a very, very common thing that happens is that this compound is too hydrophobic, meaning hard to dissolve and these kind of things. So the next step is the properties of the compound. The properties of the compound. And that is, to one extent, it's to try to change it, to try to make improve it, the compound. But you also have a technical part, which is what vehicle should I use? What kind of adjuvants can I use to make it more soluble? What kind of tricks can for I do? For the delivery, right? Yeah, in for the, the In the body, because exactly, that's the... Exactly, to make it... Uh, if you want it to be an IV administration intravenously, which is the case for sepsis, you don't want to have, take a pill. No, you want something that goes fast, fast, right? Then it's IV. So then you need a certain release. And this is what the companies are good at. They have another building. They go there and say, here's our problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But in academia, we don't have that. And uh, many of our projects get kind of stuck. They get looked at and, and uh, people who have, are experts, they say, oh, it's, if it's hard to dissolve, then oh, let's stop it. And I think it's many of academic projects, especially in anti-infectives, are stopped too early. 
we should instead have the opportunity to get help with formulations. And a little bit further. And yeah. this, I guess, is related with what you said, the pullback of the pharma companies yeah. to actually want to work in anti-infectives. If they had all these resources to yeah. be able to do this part, but now they say we don't want to put the money in that anymore, and all the basic research is put on the academia side, mm. but then is the connection, right, with being able to do a clinical trial, you need to have a compound that can be yeah. active in a body. Right, and uh, there are many nice discoveries still based on natural products. You maybe remember this, I think it was a Nature article. The Texobactin, Bactin, right? Exactly, yeah. that, the one, Slava Epstein and, yeah. and Kim. Uh, that they claim there's no resistance to it. <laughs> right, but they, I know that they have had... Re you haven't seen it taken off, right? Because they also have problems with how can this compound be made. You know, the properties of the compounds are probably not perfect and solubility and all these kinds of things. And also natural products, they tend to be perhaps a little bit more complex than oh, the yeah. things that you would yeah. synthesize in the lab yeah. from scratch, right? Which adds all these layer of difficulties as well, because they obviously they work perfectly in the natural setup where they are, yeah. but then you had to take them out from that niche and make them work in a different one. Yeah. Being such a complex, big molecules then... Yeah, exactly. And that is one of the problems that is underestimated, I think, in the case of anti-infectives, that you are targeting one type of cells mm. and you don't want it to have any effect on human cells, on eukaryotic cells. But if you target cancer or any other diseases, you focus on one cell type mm -hmm. and optimize it for that. And here you have to have both taken into account. Yeah. Uh, so again, many of these natural products are for sure not optimal in terms of being drugs. And still it's, it's so uh, wonderful <laughs> and surprising that there are so many of them that have actually... That we have been able to use worked. and exploit yeah. and that yeah. we still... I mean, the most typical one, famous one, would be the first... Uh, yeah. But it's also uh, the problem. I mean, today we have so many methods to screen early, to take all these, you know, PK properties and all properties before we actually do anything more, which makes sense. It's good. I mean, you don't do unnecessary animal experiments and so forth. However, the problem is that we for sure miss a lot of things today. So there are many of our top drugs uh, developed far, far back that they were tested directly on you, even humans. But so what the, you mean is that they wouldn't have passed the type of uh, setup we have right now? No, no, no. They would never pass. So I we mean, are maybe missing. Yeah, stuff. the most famous, I think, is uh, aspirin. If you put aspirin, the compound behind it... Acetylic acid? Uh, yeah. I don't remember. Acetyl salicylic acid. Acid, yeah, precisely. If you put that in a screening facility and start to screen for things, it will come out as a so-called frequent hitter it has all the properties you don't think of. So we have kind of a romantic view that the compound will be super selective, just find one thing and that's it. Or perfectly right yeah. off the bat. Yeah. But that is so rare. And of course, many know this. So a lot of screening today is to see if already approved drugs for other things can also be have other applications. Reused somehow. Reused yeah. in another setting. In another, hmm. Maybe as we said earlier, as a add-on to an antibiotic. Co-adjuvant. Who knows? Nice. I think we should start wrapping up. So my last question to you is, what do you find perhaps is most misunderstood about your field? Something that you come across that you try to explain to people perhaps of other disciplines or the general public, maybe preconceptions they have about chemists or chemistry mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. do you have any stories like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, when it comes to chemistry, I was I got hooked quite late. I mean, I think many have a view that you start as a kid and get this, you know, chemist, <laughs> the little chemist in the in the backyard. I don't know. But I was playing young chemist kid. <laughs> yeah, the young chemist kid, exactly. But I was playing football and hockey and uh, did well in school. But I had no, you know, but I had a teacher. Well, saying most what I said earlier that got me hooked. That if you know how to make a molecule, if you know organic chemistry, you can make new compounds. And to me, that is often lacking in school. The view of a chemist is either that you poison the world <laughs> or we just find things. We are out looking and we find something. 
but this little piece of actually being uh, designing and making something for the first time, I think it's really cool. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazingly cool. So you make something that no one else has made before. And when you also can put it in a context like this, that you have great friends that can actually test the compound and get the feedback. You can imagine my group. Mm-hmm. being a PhD student making a molecule and the next week you know uh, oh it had an effect it actually works right ah, it's not just it's a so inspiring inert thing yeah there. and I think this curiosity driven ability in chemistry inspiration inspiration right? and also doing this uh, having the the chance of creating the creativity uh-huh. is missing a bit in school and that's to me and and also we are shutting down more and more well resources in school is spread out to to many things today so Mm -hmm. uh, there are very small resources to do lab work so uh, many teachers but also others that give advice to kids what they should do or not they think of chemistry as extremely theoretical and not practical and enough not practical. to actually reach yeah, the to re- students. Well, to, to have some stu- the niche of students that would probably love synthetic organic chemistry. You can imagine we don't have, of course, we have a lot of traditional methods, but we also invent methods. How should I get this gas into that flask? Oh, I have to condense it uh, into this flask. So you think then, about the properties in order to get yeah, to where you a, want to get. It's a lot of, uh, you know, making uh, the lab work is so cool. It's really sad <laughs> to think about the pullback yeah, of resources in that sense, because actually that was also my personal story. In high school, I had a biology teacher, which she was a high school teacher, but she would have liked to be really like a researcher scientist. So she loved the practical part. So she would stay extra every day and have a set of activities that whoever wanted would could stay yeah. and do the experiments. Mm-hmm. So I always stayed. I always did those experiments. I went this step forward. And this was her own initiative. It wasn't anything that was part of the curriculum. It's just because no. she thought that that way she could inspire people. And she definitely inspired me. I am a biologist because of that, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So maybe no, we... Uh, it's, mm. So you, you come to a conclusion which could be a nice ending of the pod, but I should think we should send out a, a greeting to these great teachers because they make such a big difference. Yeah. And so this teacher that got me hooked uh, turned out to be one of the best in the country, obviously. And, and my upper secondary school in the topic organic chemistry got the highest grades every year in, in Sweden when they had these the general tests. tests. Yeah. So obviously he was a bit, yeah, he had something, right? Yeah. And then when I started my career, I started to realize that there were other professors and other that used to have him as a also, teacher. Yeah. So I um, nominated him to be an honorary doctor at Umeå University, which was a bit different. Normally it's someone who is... Uh, a researcher also in another a university. A researcher yeah. that is, of course, contributing a lot. But I said that let this teacher be... Uh, symbol for all the other teachers because that is as important as the later career exactly so uh, and they accepted it so he was given that so that's he, so beautiful uh, such a beautiful story yeah, and, and i i'm so proud of it so yeah. he, he's he was awarded that unfortunately he passed away uh, last year so but even though he passed away his work will exactly. obviously stay we, for long we, we know that he uh, He's a symbol for good teachers. That's such a beautiful ending to this podcast. Definitely, we appreciate all the work that is done by inspirational teachers in schools, middle schools, high schools. And there will be no science in the future without people like them that will actually put us this seed of curiosity, which is there in every single kid. It needs to be fed. It needs to be continuously massage in a way that they can actually then take their own decisions and continue in this path. So thank you so much. Do you have anything else you would like to add to our episode? No, I just, I'm just glad I, I got the chance to talk to you and uh, I appreciate that you have started this pod. Yeah, so. we're really, really happy to have you here and uh, we hope that our listeners also enjoy the interview as much as I, I have been enjoying it talking to you. Thank Great. you so much, yeah, Frederick. Thanks. Welcome back. As you probably heard, this was a little longer interview than we are normally used to, but 
it was really difficult to get things from it because it was so round up and so great. So, um, Paul, can you share with us? What do you think about the interview? It, it was really nice to listen to Frederick. Um, I think it was so lovely that he described uh, his career path and how things have shaped and how being really open in terms of research has directed his research in AMR. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely lovely. Yeah, I also enjoyed a lot his experience and how well he shared with us his work in a very multidisciplinary setting from right. the beginning of his career and then how he has tried to implement that in somewhat a smaller group but here in, in the work that he's doing. So right. it fits very perfectly the purpose of this podcast to show right. that, you know, AMR is something that we need to study from different angles and a lot of different disciplines and professionals have a lot to give to it as well. And you can really hear from the interview that in his heart of hearts, he's a teacher. He's a genuine <laughs> yeah, teacher, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, he really cares not just about the research, but also how to educate people in terms of teaching. And mm-hmm. Being an academic is not just a researcher, it's also an academic who teaches and uh, brings out the new new generation in mm-hmm. order to continue the cycle, right? Yeah, I, I, I did think <laughs> it was um, lovely the way we ended up the interview in that more of like emotional touch of like and right. raising the awareness right. that teachers are so important from the very beginning. And they are, the, I, think, yeah. I think we we don't say that enough, like like you mentioned in the interview. Like we really don't say that enough. <laughs> yeah, it's very important to have those frontliners, kind of, right? Yeah, and like yeah. role models as mm, well, in mm, a sense, you know, mm. some people that you can when you are young and you are a little bit lost because we're all lost when we're very young. I mean, yeah. You have someone to look up to and someone that can show you the beauty of possibilities that there are out there. So yeah, we actually believe there is not much to explain per se of the interview I because it was, was really self-explanatory everything. Right. So because the interview was also a little bit longer we are keeping this discussion very short we really really hope that you enjoyed listening to him and the conversation i had with him and then uh, see you in the news section to know what's going on around even though it's summer but i'm sure there are things Things going on yeah Welcome to our new section. Now we do have Jenny back with us after a little bit of a voice hiatus. Yeah, uh, still a little rough, but a little bit. I can talk now. <laughs> Good. Today we're going to talk about two articles, scientific articles published uh, in scientific journals, and both with a little bit of uh, press coverage as well. So we're going to, of course, uh, leave the links to both the original articles and the press coverage for you to read and dwell a little bit more on it. So the first one we're going to talk about is more on the science side of things. Natural science. Natural sciences. And it talks about heteroresistance, which is a concept that we have mentioned before in the podcast. Can you maybe refresh what heteroresistance is? Yeah, I can try. Yeah, we talked about this before when we talked about susceptibility testing. So if you're testing to see if uh, bacteria or bacteria are resistant to antibiotics that you might not be able to detect if like the whole population of bacteria might not have the same resistance levels. So most of them might be susceptible, but a small fraction could be resistant even though they're the same bacteria. So it's like a subpopulation that has a high increased resistance. Yeah. So it's like we have a population of bacteria and then not the whole population reacts the same way to antibiotic yeah. treatment. So you might have a partial section of the population that will not react to the mm-hmm. antibiotic treatment. That doesn't mean the whole population is resistant but you have an heteroresistant yeah. of sorts. In so, many of the cases, especially the ones we're talking about here, it's unstable and it means that these bacteria are all genetically identical in the sense of that there's no mutations They don't happening have a stable like mutation that. Yeah. that would make them homogeneously exactly. resistant. To and what we talked about before was that it's often amplifications of genes that can be lost. Yeah, so this article is titled Antibiotic Combinations that Exploit Heteroresistance to Multiple Drugs Effectively Control Infection. It was published in Nature Microbiology back on the 17th of June. It's a letter, so it's kind of like a shorter article, yeah. but an all kind of mushed together. It doesn't mm-hmm. have sections per se. We found it particularly interesting, not only because we already mentioned what system was because we also talked about a recent published article by here uh, people at the yeah. university understanding what a resistant is and how it might work why mm-hmm. and how why, common it is and how common it is looking into like the prevalence of it now is a step forward which is looking at if you take a combination of antibiotic you might be able to treat successfully these the infections that come from bacteria that are heteroresistant. yeah in particular they actually look into carbapenem resistant enterobacteriaceae which is a quite 
dangerous type of resistance. Yeah, it's a high it, priority. It's infection. a high priority. It includes Enterobacter, Klebsiella, and Escherichia coli as well. Mm-hmm. And it's been showing up to 30% of mortality for invasive infections with this type of bacteria. And what they actually found is a little bit alarming, I would say, is that the majority of these uh, isolates that they have from the clinics of this type of bacteria, they were not just resistant to one antibiotic, but they actually presented heteroresistance mm-hmm. and heteroresistant to more than one antibiotic. Yeah, so they were largely resistant, like regular homogeneous resistance, but there are also high frequencies of heteroresistance and to multiple antibiotics. And this correlation with how these, because they did more precise testing, diagnostic testing that's kind of difficult to do on a large scale, Yeah, the PAP test. And they compared this to clinical testing that's done, and it didn't really overlap. I mean, they found a lot of strains that were considered to be susceptible from clinical testing that were really heteroresistant or resistant in clinical testing that were really heteroresistant. Well, that's the problem with the ways we have right now of assessing if a bacteria that's causing an infection is resistant or susceptible. Yeah. It's like black and white. And this type of more complex patterns of resistance is not actually detected. No. But the paper what it's actually looking into is if you have a bacteria that is heteroresistant mm-hmm. to two antibiotics, you could actually use those two antibiotics to completely eradicate the infection given by that. So they are looking to uh, heteroresistant to colistin, fosfomycin, ceftazidim. And then what they actually saw is that first, the subpopulations that are heteroresistant to these three antibiotics are independent and different. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you have a population, you have a bacterial strain where one subpopulation is resistant to colistin, another subpopulation is resistant to fosfomycin, then if you treat that with colistin and fosfomycin, you are going to be able to get rid of the whole infection. Yeah. Whereas if you only use colistin, you are going to kill the majority of the population that is sensitive to colistin, but you are going to still have a reservoir of colistin, heteroresistant bacteria that will take over the population after, and then you are not going to have a successful treatment. Yeah. But then, if you actually use those two together, you are going to be able to treat the infection. Mm-hmm. And that's what the paper is looking into. Yeah, and they found that, I mean, this doesn't work when it's homoresistant or like when the whole population Homogeneous is resistant. resistant yeah. Then this dual combination therapy situation doesn't work. It works in these situations where it's only heteroresistant. Heteroresistant, yeah. And I like that they talked about, I mean, there have been ideas before about using combinations of antibiotics and therapy, and they talked about some of the most common ones and speculated that this might be because... They actually didn't know because there's been a lot of research into this combination and they do what is called this uh, checkboard analysis and Mm -hmm. see if there are some synergies of some antibiotics. And there's been a lot of empirical data about it and even some successful combinations, but there hasn't been really a a hypothesis of why these combinations actually were working. And they don't don't seem to always work. It's not always working. They, yeah. they're, they're kind of things that have been hypothesized that work in some very successful cases, but they're not always successful. And this kind of gives an idea of maybe it's... Due to the heteroresistant exactly. patterns. So maybe those previous studies that be looking at combination therapy and some successful combination therapy is actually working because what they actually are looking into is treating these heteroresistant mm-hmm. patterns that there are in the, in the strains. Yeah. So it's quite uh, interesting and also that if we are able to get into a situation where the susceptibility testing and the diagnostics are so sensitive and so well yeah. developed where we can actually know if there are subpopulations that are resistant to different antibiotics on the go we will be able to to decide on these combinations yeah. and to provide them a better treatment with a already available antibiotics which is always this key do we need more antibiotics can mm-hmm. we use the ones we have in a better way in a more efficient way mm. i think the only problem going forward because a lot of the combinations that are actually used right now like for example sulfa trimetropine is a very common yeah. combination of two antibiotics this is actually formulated already together so it's not like you give sulfa and you give trimetropine separately to a yeah. patient but this is a formulation where these two drugs come together so my question on my regard target the same pathway I mean yeah. sulfa and trimetropine is a little bit different than the combinations that we're talking about yeah, yeah. But in this situation how would it look when in the practicality would you be able to give the antibiotics yeah. that are in the market as a mono antibiotic, then give them together at the same time to the yeah. same person. What kind of doses do you use? Do you use the same amount? So these these are questions that of course mm-hmm. come after when you decide. Yeah, these two antibiotics actually will work together for yeah. this type of infection. But I think the key thing, like you mentioned earlier, though, for this is that diagnostics in terms of rapid AST is really needed because in order to really uh, combine antibiotics, like you mentioned, you need a quick answer. So you yeah. know, okay, this antibiotics work in combination 
combination with this. And These are dental abrasives and parts. So then, key player yeah. in this whole pipeline is diagnostics, oh, yeah. which yeah. we, we oh, sorely <laughs> need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because like you said, um, the pub test that is used for this uh, in this study is tedious, long, yeah. tedious. It's very test. useful, but it's, it's, very it, useful. it's very hard to apply it to it's a, a clinical very, setting. It's a lab technique yeah. that you actually use to get a more in-depth knowledge yeah. of right. what's going on. It's something we can do in our labs here, but you can't really do in a hospital setting when you need a quick answer. It's not going to give you that. Especially maybe, in acute infection cases yeah. where a patient needs the answer right there. And, and then. that's a case that we should also maybe mention. I mean, not even dual therapy often. I mean, I've heard of cases, severe cases where they set in, you know, three or four antibiotics right away and they just in. kind of put everything in intravenous high doses, basically, right. because they There's need no to. Way, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a severe blood infection or something and the patient needs it now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's also cases there where they say, well, this combination didn't work. This one did and we don't know why. Yeah, exactly. So it's like shedding a little bit more of light into what possible combinations might work and what yeah. will be the reasons and then make a informed decision of yeah. what to use. But yeah, it was very interesting to read and they Absolutely. gave a really mm-hmm. good, they make a really good case for yeah. why this might be the way forward. Um, yeah. yeah mean, it was really a nice. really interesting read, I thought. Yeah. But should we move on to our other article? Yeah. So our other article is a little bit more on the policy side of things. We like having a little bit of both mm-hmm. here. Yeah. It was published on June 11th, 2019 in Plus Medicine called uh, Government Policy Interventions to Reduce Human Antimicrobial Use, a Systematic Review and Evidence Map. So this article was really just, I mean, as the title says, is a review looking at a lot of different policy actions that have been done and that have been, I mean, they, they only looked at ones that have been on, like really studied, analyzed, and they had some sort of evaluation. There, with there is, well. They're very rigorous. So they're yeah. just taking in data that has been published out there. And yeah. actually, we must say before continuing that this article uh, is led by a person that we had in our podcast. Oh, yeah. So yes. Stephen Hoffman is the lead uh, scientist researcher in this uh, publication. And if you want to know a little bit more of what he works on, you can go and check episode five of our podcast. So this is one of the things, I mean, this kind of article or this kind of work is just so crucially important because this so is... needed. Yeah, it's one of the few cases where, I mean, we talk about evidence-based policy. First, right? Yeah, at least in this case for antibiotic resistance, that they mentioned that this is missing. Yes. Yes, yeah, this is the yeah. first kind of tool or pool yeah. data of what things are out there, what countries have done about this national, national action, action plan yeah. implementations towards reducing the problem of antimicrobial yeah. resistance. And they just like get all this data. What is it mm-hmm. out there? What have they done? Is there evaluating any, any, how it went? I mean, a lot of it is about any, the evaluation. Is there any point to it? Yeah. Do they have any results? So it, yeah. they found 69 unique evaluations of government policy interventions. And within those 69, they actually found 17 unique policy options yeah. that the governments could actually implement and use in order to to get to that goal. Yeah. And interestingly, these were very context dependent. So not only were, I mean, there were regions of the world where they didn't find anything. It was four out of the six WHO regions mm. had these kinds of things that they could study. Uh, for example, in Africa, they only found two and they were both anti-malarial, mm. which were the only anti-malarial ones mm. and only there. Mm. And that was all they had. And they didn't find any antiviral, antifungal. It kind of really sheds a light on what's missing, what's already been done and how specific this is regions i mean communication policies and right. like and looking at guidelines talked about before that yeah. everything is super context dependent mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so overall what they found is that the most common of those policies were actually informational strategies which include all these public awareness campaigns that yeah. we're always talking about and why we think our podcast is also very relevant and important <laughs> a little bit more of the communication side informing the healthcare workers and the public about mr and antimicrobial overuse and so together with this uh, awareness campaign and these information strategies is also very common that the countries try to put out antimicrobial guidelines which can actually provide information to the workers about what is the preferred use of the antimicrobials mm-hmm. or the preferred treatment for resistant infections and so on and so forth. And I, I was actually kind of surprised that this kind of, I mean, I understand that these are the two main things that a lot of governments can actually do and can actually evaluate somehow yeah. also how they work it. But I was surprised that less commonly reported would be things like the prescription requirement, which is banning the over-the-counter yeah. sales of antibiotics that does not actually like all countries should have that out there but i think that's part of what this is i mean they're talking about studies where this has been evaluated and that's already i mean they mentioned in the sense of this is a context-based thing so mm-hmm. they mentioned that latin american countries in this case were the ones that had these uh, prescription requirements as a change and th- i mean that's already the case in for example much of europe and so maybe that it was yeah already yeah. implemented exactly. before there's changes so that's why they don't include them yeah that yeah. actually makes sense so I think I th- that was one of the things that I thought this was really great because it really brings up these context things and they show up, you know, well, it was this way before. Now they're changing the, yeah. what is re- it the requirement. Yeah. Hmm. 
And they're really putting it in the context of how does the healthcare system look here? Like they're talking about how are physicians um, reimbursed? Exactly. Are they reimbursed mm. by the pharmaceutical company giving that? Or is it the national health plan is reimbursing differently depending on if you can maintain the guideline? Like it's it's really big. And I mean, countries can go in and see we have this kind of a health system. What fits us? What's been done in countries with similar health systems, similar situations in different parts of the world if need be. But, you know, get some information about what might be successful. And they talk out in here about like this is to not waste resources mm. we really need to get this right mm. so all of these things should be evaluated should be planned in a way that can be evaluated and then we continuously need to use this information to update yes. yeah that's that's also the case they're making that for whatever is coming forward it yeah. is very important that everything is done in a regulated controlled mm-hmm. evaluated way that we can then use the information because it's just doing it without reporting it without getting information yeah it gives no value. No. Yeah. yeah. We need to do something, but we need to do it in you know the absolute best way possible. Yeah. So and it's really good uh, that they put this out there. And yeah. It... It's an excellent source if you want information about what's been done in different countries. I mean, this is a library of. It's really really studies. comprehensive. Yeah. Yes. So you can get a lot of information out of this. Yeah. So with this, we are finished with today's episode. But before concluding and closing up, uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things. One is that I want to say thank you to the people people of 17 different countries that have listened to the podcast on the past month. I was looking a little bit about the, st- the statistics. <laughs> um, people, and actually, I have to say that I'm surprised that the United Kingdom is actually winning <laughs> the listen listeners' wow. uh, statistics. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, more than people from Sweden. So, yeah. so people from uh, United Kingdom, Sweden, the States, Canada, Finland, France, Australia, Turkey, Egypt, Switzerland, Norway, Germany, Denmark, Spain, Ireland, Philippines, and Puerto Rico. Thank you so much for listening to us. And now we are on a stage where we will really appreciate if you are able to give us some feedback about the podcast uh, for us moving forward during the autumn. What things would you like to listen about? What things do you want to learn about? Uh, If this podcast has been useful to you, if you are learning with us, it would be really good if you can leave a short review uh, in iTunes, for example, or any platform you are using. You can rate us as well, which will help us show higher in the searches if anybody is looking for information about antibiotics, antimicrobials and so on and so forth. So that would actually help us a lot and yeah. obviously you can also email us or tweet to us directly with the hashtag the AMR studio and we are going to listen to you and hopefully implement whatever ideas yeah. you have. Help us improve. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to us and I hope to see you and have you back with us next month in September the 2nd. See Thank you. you. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes. Yeah.